This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children, and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. So I told her who we were and that she was under arrest and cautioned her and it was just a very cold sort of reaction. She didn't flinch. In September 1982, Leonard John Moss, Johnny, was living in Bendigo with his wife Lorraine and three young children. From the outside, they appeared a normal family with mum and dad working hard to provide a comfortable home for them and the children to pay off the mortgage maybe even a treat of fish and chips Friday nights. But they were anything but normal. The only person who knew things weren't as they seemed was Lorraine, who had a secret, a terrible secret, which all came undone 15 years later, rocking the very foundations of everything the children believed in and which fractured the family forever. My guest today, Kira Olney, you may have heard on previous podcasts, but she was a detective at Missing Persons Unit of the Homicide Squad and Kira was given a file to investigate, which was all about Lorraine's secret. Could she gain the confidence of a young woman torn between the love of her mother and the love of her father, walking the tightrope of family allegiances versus justice? The dilemmas Lorraine and Johnny's middle daughter faced put her in an unenviable position unthinkable and unfathomable to most of us. Thanks for joining us, Kira. Hello again, Narelle. How are you? Nice to have you on board. Again. <laughs> Lovely to have you back. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to today because 
You've got quite an unusual case to tell us about, haven't you? A bit of a case study we thought uh, the listeners might be interested in. So I might hand it over to you um, and if you can tell us about that file that landed on your desk way back in October of 2000. Yeah, so I was, um, as you mentioned in your intro, I was a detective with the Missing Persons Unit um, and they were a part of the a crew of the Homicide Squad um, and they also incorporated the Cold Case Squad um, or team. Um, so they were all the one team. So we looked into suspicious missing person cases as well as looking into some cold case jobs. Um, so I just transferred to that team. I was originally on an on-call crew at the Homicide Squad and there was a bit of an opportunity to transfer over and look at the cold cases and the missing person cases. So, um, yeah, I just transferred over. So I was tidying up a few jobs. I didn't have that much on my plate. So the boss of our team at the time was Ron Iddles, the lovely Ron, and he sort of wandered over to me and thought, now I might have a file for you. Um, so he gave me the file and what it was was basically just a, a piece of paper with a phone number on it. Um, and he said, look, this is a, a retired member of the Homicide Squad. Um, he was a veteran homicide investigator. His name was Jack Jacobs and he had contacted Ron to inform him that he had received some information about a case that he had had investigated in the early 80s. Um, so I, I made contact with Jack um, and he, he informed me that he'd received a call from the eldest daughter of Johnny Moss um, and she had told him about a phone call that she had from her sister about their mother um, who had confessed to killing their father. Um, and that was recent um, at the time. Um, so that was basically how it all started. So obviously I, I had to um, get in contact with um, Colleen, which is the, the daughter, um, and just appraise myself of, I suppose, of what the, the original case was about. So most of the investigation notes and files were handwritten back in those days. So um, there wasn't any computer databases that we could access back then, unlike today. So I had to actually go digging around a bit um, into some old box files um, but I don't know if you remember, Narelle, we had all those files in that office uh, at the back of the interview rooms. There was a, a lot of box files there from old jobs. Do you remember those? Or Yeah. No, I do remember them because um, I used to walk into that office and see all those boxes of files and I used to think that they represented so many distraught families because they were unsolved. So, yes, I do remember that very well. Yeah, and I, I didn't, I didn't realise, but there are actually only some of the old box files. Um, when they got to a certain age, they would then be transferred to the records disposal unit um, attached to, to Vicpol. I think it was out in the western suburbs somewhere. So I actually found that all the, the stuff that I needed to look at was actually in box files out at, out at the disposal unit. So... Um, so, yeah, I had to source those. It actually reminded me of a scene from the 
the show Cold Case. Do you remember? Oh, you don't watch television, do you? So you wouldn't have seen that show. <laughs> Did you ever see the show Cold Case? <laughs> no. <laughs> Where they, no. And at the start, they um. At the start of each program, they there's a scene where they go into the archives and pull out a box file. It's only ever one box file, which is unrealistic. But um, yeah. yeah, you know, and go into the room and blow off all the old dust of the file. So it was a bit like that actually. So I found a couple of box files that had a bit of material in it, yeah. um, and a lot of the documents that were in the box files were, you know, old information reports, investigation logs, um, investigator notes, but they were all handwritten. So nothing was on the computer back in the 80s. And, oh, my Lord, I started to curse copper's handwriting. It was worse than doctor's handwriting. I, <laughs> no, surely really, not. <laughs> that was <laughs> – so um, I got some of those – box files but then I discovered that some of the material had actually um wasn't there it was missing um and there was a lot of um phone calls made and we worked out that um because it was a subject of a coronial inquest that the brief of evidence was actually filed at the coroner's court because it was on public record um so then the phone call to the coroner's court and, um, oh, there's notes all over my diary of phone numbers and people to speak to and everything. And I think over the course of a couple of days, I finally found out that all their records of 10 years or older actually filed at the public records office in town. So I've, I went out there um, and I think it was Castleton Place. I think it's still there, but um, there's all these archives and um, you've got to register and all that sort of thing and, and then you have to apply to get the records. So that took a couple of days as well because they're off-site. Um, thankfully, they had a very good accurate record-keeping process and they were able to locate the outstanding box files that contain the, the coroner's file, the um, all the original witness statements, the transcripts of the interviews, um, a transcript of the inquest, all the... Um, medical records which were extensive and some physical exhibits so one of the exhibits in the box was a small brown Tupperware container you know the little tumblers I've still got a set myself actually but I know that they were big in the 70s where they were I remember my mum had a set one was brown one was orange I think one was yellow and maybe I think the other one might have been green do you remember those at all? In every house in every street in Victoria, including mine, <laughs> had a set of those. Yeah, these Tupperware containers were all the rage back then and it was just, yeah, the only exhibit, physical exhibit in the box file was this one brown Tupperware container and a red spoon. Um, so um, I actually was able to take, sign them out, all those box files, and then take them back to the office. So that's when I started yeah, having a look through all these old box files, it made for some interesting reading, that's for sure. And that was basically the start of the investigation. So could you take us through that investigation what happened? Because it's such a fascinating case due to lots of things, but including the difficulties of the passage of time and limited physical evidence. However, sometimes that passage of time has its advantages as well. And you're starting on the back foot, aren't you? Because all you really had was a Tupperware container and a red spoon. I think, yeah, there might have been a couple. I mean, obviously the medical records formed part of an exhibit, so they were extensive. Um, but, yeah, I think 
they were the only other two items of note that had been produced at the trial. Oh, and sorry, not the trial, at the inquest. So, um, but everything that was on the coroner brief, on the inquest brief, was in that box file. So, yeah. So, can you tell us how Johnny got sick and how it was discovered that he was being poisoned? Yeah, okay. So, the, the timeline of, of Johnny Moss's illness was probably the the first thing that was presented to them. So, um, to summarise that, in, in late November 1978, um, he became very ill and began began to suffer from night sweats and stomach cramps and diarrhoea. And some of his symptoms were consistent with a, a disease called leptospirosis. And that's a disease suffered by people who regularly deal with animals, including vets and slaughtermen, which John was. He was a slaughterman at, at Mayfair Hams and, and Bacon. So John recovered from that bout of illness. Um, so that was in 1978. But then there was a start. That was the start of a cycle of ill health, that would include bouts of fatigue and dizziness and numbness in his fingers and his toes, and that sort of came and went for a couple of years. And then in September 1984, so nearly four years later, John had another nasty vomiting attack, and he had a rash and was feeling very fatigued. So. The tests that they conducted then, they were inconclusive, but that pattern of illness would continue for the next two years um, and obviously get worse as time went on. Um, he would imp- you know, he would appear to improve and then slide back and then he would relapse, leaving him frail. And he actually went into hospital on five occasions and each day his condition would improve, but he would relapse after he was discharged. And he, he was eventually so ill that he was admitted to the Austin Hospital in Heidelberg. They sort of specialised in those sorts of cases. So um, in August 1983, um, doctors took hair and nail samples to test for lead arsenic poisoning. Um, so that was in the August, but the results were mislaid and they didn't get to the doctors at the Austin until the day before he passed away, which was on the 13th of January in 1984. Um, So when the doctors found the cause of death, that it was lead arsenic poisoning, they notified police and it was handed to the homicide squad um, and that's where Jack Jacobs came into it. So so four days after John died, the um, police searched the house and, and found nothing. But then two days later, they returned and discovered the small brown Tupperware container hidden in the rafters in the garage, which was the item in the the box file. So it contained an off-white powder and it was later found to be arsenic. So the investigators established that um, the family had, well, John and and Lorraine had bought a tin of, um, it was a Lane's brand arsenic from a local nursery in 1978. And that powder was commonly used to spray apple trees um, and it was for a, to stop coddling moth. Um, but it was withdrawn from sale in the early 80s. Um, so they conducted some science scientific tests on John's hair and it showed that he had 80 times the normal level of arsenic. Um, so upon receiving the results of these tests... 80 times? 80 times, yeah. So... Massive, yeah. So this was all sort of pointing towards that he's obviously been poisoned. So they um, – and given that the the Tupperware container contained 
arsenic was sort of you know putting two and two together so upon receiving the results of the the arsenic in the container that the um, detectives took Lorraine to the Bendigo police station for questioning and it was then that she she portrayed herself as the you know the grieving widow she was you know that she was loving and caring wife and that she would watched him trickle away to nothing and um, poor me, that sort of thing. Um, and even though they didn't have a motive, I mean, you don't have to have a motive as a point of proof, but it also helps build a case. So they just didn't have, you know, they've got this Tupperware container with arsenic. John's 80 times normal levels of arsenic in his body, but there was sort of no motive for why anyone would actually poison him. Um, so they interviewed friends and family and, and found that rumours had started that Lorraine had killed John to run off with another guy. And interestingly, a few months later, after John had died, Bobby White moved in, which was a friend of – he used to work with John at the factory at Mayfair's and was a family friend. So – and it was interesting, a client of Lorraine's home help job at the time recalled that Lorraine actually asked her if she could borrow an old medical book, which actually turned out to be a book on on poisoning. So there were sort of lots of little things coming into play, but still nothing concrete. So um, they did some um, testing at at the house on the kitchen area so where the food prep and around the sink and they took some samples of um that were taken from the food and the fat residue trapped into the cracks near the kitchen sink and they were found to contain well that's being precise (laughs) yeah yeah so it was pretty advanced back for those days i suppose um they found those samples contained one-to-one lead and arsenic mixture which was similar to what was found in the tupperware container so this is a couple of months down the track by the time these results came through. Um, so there was there was a circumstantial case building um, and they felt that there was enough to charge Lorraine with the murder of, of her husband at that time. So the coroner found that John, back in those days, the, the process was that the inquest also acted as the um, committal. Um, so different to nowadays where you have a committal that's heard in separately from the inquest. But back in those days, they would have an inquest, but that doubled up as a, as a committal hearing, so a preliminary hearing to see if there's enough evidence to go to trial. Um, so the coroner found that while John had been poisoned by someone, he found that there was insufficient evidence to establish who was responsible. So the charge of murder was dropped. Um but if she had been tried and acquitted in front of a jury back then, then she would be in the clear. So there, But because there was no trial, the case remained open, which, of course, led led to what, where we got to. So so the evidence was placed in a few box files and, and Jack Jacobs retired, but um, thankfully he remained in contact with Tracy and then that led to the phone call from Tracy all those years later. Um, so that's yeah where um I suppose I came in. So so from 1978 to 1984 Johnny'd been unwell in spits and spurts with nobody really having a clue what was wrong with him because he just kept getting better. Yet it seems quite likely Lorraine had started poisoning him way back in 1978. Yep. 
Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, we believe that that's actually what, yeah, she started back then and started increasing the levels as as time went on um, to the point where she was, um, we believe, feeding him in the hospital when he was at the Austin, that she was giving it to him while he was in hospital because the, the pattern started forming that whenever he left hospital, he would get well, uh, when it, while he was at hospital, he'd so slowly start to recover. But as soon as he went back out, back home, um, that he'd, he'd get, um, you know, quite ill again. So, but towards the end, um, when he was in hospital for a long stage, um, yeah, they they noticed that his his levels were increasing, and and Lorraine was actually staying at the hospital in the nurses' quarters at the time he was in there for a couple of months so she was staying there and they suspect that he was she was actually feeding it to him while he was in hospital which there was two massive doses towards the end um it, it sort of sounds like she was a, a like a Jekyll and Hyde like one minute she's caring compassionate you know loving wife but on the flip side slowly murdering her husband in full view of her children and even at the hospital where she was by his side day and night, she's continuing to feed him poison. You'd have to wonder why she started back in 1978. Like what was going on back then that she thought up this crazy idea? Yeah, and I suppose that didn't come out till later on about the – it wasn't really until he – that John had passed away that um, the Bobby White sort of rumours had started. Um, and they were um, – Early early days because all of a sudden Lorraine, um, the grieving widow, was spending a lot of time with Bobby. He was around at the house a lot, you know, doing handyman jobs. But he was also there at the house prior to John dying and he would, you know, do all the mowing and all that sort of stuff. So poor John's in the lounge room very unwell in a wheelchair and then, yeah, Bobby's around, yeah, mowing the lawns and cutting her grass so to speak yeah so I mean we don't Lorraine's never never told us but um everything was pointing towards that something was may have been going on then and then hence the reason why um yeah she's poisoned him and then poisoned John but then after he died Bobby White's yeah suddenly moved in there was a statement from one of the um I think it was her sister-in-law that noticed that Lorraine had started wearing makeup and that sort of thing, whereas prior to John dying, she hadn't and she'd be out with Bobby at the bowling club and having a great time and even the girls noticed that, you know, she was putting on makeup and dressing in clothing that she wouldn't normally dress in and that sort of thing. So there was a couple of things pointing towards to that and that's what we suspected. But, yeah. We, she still hasn't actually admitted that that was what, what happened. Looking back, it's easy to see and it all makes sense, but it would have been hard to think anything else back then. And if you did, you'd just re- disregard it because it was just so outlandish, so absurd and ludicrous. It was interesting in the original notes that the doctors noticed that when he did actually pass, um, she was her reaction was a quite strange. In that, even though she was, you know, woe is me. Um, I can't believe he's gone. But then she said, "Am I going to get into trouble?" 
or am I going to go to jail? So the doctors sort of thought, oh, that's a bit bit of a, um, yeah, not um, the usual reaction that you would expect from a grieving person. So that was something that stuck out in their minds and was actually mentioned in a couple of their statements. So, and that's sort of when they started thinking, well, and then the results, of course, turned up a day before. So it was all sort of coming together. So, yeah, who knows what would have happened if those test results had have come through a little bit sooner. So who was it that started the ball rolling out of the three children? I think I might have mentioned it earlier, but it was Colleen. So there was Tracy was the eldest, then Colleen, and then Tim was the younger brother and he was the youngest. And how old were the kids at the time? I think Tracy, I think it was either 16 or 17. Um, so Colleen was around 14, 15, and I think, Tim, there was a couple of years between Colleen and Tim. So they were just, yeah, teenagers. Um, and obviously Tracy, being a bit older, um, she was a, a little bit more involved with the with the aftermath, I suppose. And um, she actually started suspecting that her mother was involved um, and she left home not long after. Um, John died um, and she had little to do with her mother after that. Um, so it sort of fractured the family, the kids. Colin and Tim were obviously too young to understand what was going on and, and stayed with their mother. They were just kids and none the wiser, I suppose. But I suppose Tracy, being a little bit older, sort of she sort of knew um, what was going on and, and couldn't stay there. So Colleen grew up believing that her mother could not possibly do something so dreadful. And, you know, um, she actually, Colleen actually was the only one that had a con- had a relationship with Lorraine as they grew up. Um, Tim went off the rails a little bit and um, obviously the three of them weren't in the same house. So, um, yeah, so it was a really, really difficult time for all three of them. They were all torn and, um, yeah, but thankfully um, – Colleen, you know, had some contact with Tracy and she did reach out to Tracy after her mum had um, had this confession. So um, it was about um, 15 years later. Um, so Lorraine rang Colleen and asked her to visit. Um, so Lorraine was still living in Bendigo then. Colleen um, organised to go up the following day thought it was a little bit unusual but they had had contacts so just thought oh there's you know didn't didn't dream that she was going to get Lorraine start confessing to killing her dad so the first thing she said was Lorraine said to Colleen was I think I killed your dad um and then she started on this story that John had bought a tin of sausage thickener home from Mayfair's and he kept it under the sink and that because he was so this is what Lorraine was saying he was so disorganised and kept all the tins of poisons near the sausage thickener under the sink and she actually mixed them together. So Colleen didn't buy the story for one moment um, because, you know, well, we didn't get sick. Then she remembered the time that she watched her mum mixing some white powder into the butter that she was spreading on the toast for John and asked her about it. And, you know, what's that? And Lorraine snapped at her and basically got her from the scruff of the collar and marched her out of the kitchen. Um, So that stuck in Colleen's mind. So things are starting to sort of, I suppose, go into place for Colleen. Uh, She's probably um, 
in, I suppose, as anyone would be, you want to deny, you know, anything that you think that your mother's killed your father. You don't want to think that was possible. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Lorraine was clearly on the verge of a of a nervous conscious cleansing breakdown. And, um, again, the following day, um, Colleen was contacted and because Lorraine had taken an overdose of pills, so Bobby had rung Colleen and so Colleen rushed back to the house and that was the time that um, this confession came out. Um, Colleen didn't even try the same story. I think she's realised that Colleen wasn't going to cop it and she claimed that um, John smoked and drank away their pay and that she'd killed him for the superannuation money, all of $11,000. And she kept saying, I did it, I did it, and then rang her sister in Queensland and told her that she'd killed John. Um, Lorraine's younger brother and his wife were living next door and to Lorraine and Bobby, and so they heard all about it because um, she was screaming and hysterical and, um, and Colleen's partner at the time, he was – He'd, he'd taken, driven Colleen up um, and heard the whole confession as well. So there was another drug, drug overdose a few days later and Lorraine was taken to hospital on that occasion and then the nurse overheard Lorraine tell her husband, Bobby, because they actually married, um, that she'd killed someone and she needed to tell him. Um, there were some similar confessions to some psychologists and nursing staff um so yeah it was just all this big um confession time I suppose and then um but then she was released from hospital um and it was not spoken of so Bobby and Lorraine well Colleen didn't have any contact with her um and Lorraine and Bobby have just carried on as if um Nothing had happened, basically. So, but obviously, that the whole event it ate away at Colleen. She was really struggling with it, and um, and that's why she ended up ringing Tracy, who then immediately rang Jack Jacobs. So there was a bit of there was a bit of time in between. So that was April, and then I think October was the phone call to Tracy. So poor Colleen had struggled with it for all that amount of time, and then finally, oh, I just can't imagine what it would have been like for her to. I suppose, yeah, bring her sister who Tracy was adamant that she always suspected that Lorraine was responsible. So they hadn't had a relationship where they agreed. Um, so that was, yeah, massive call for, for Colleen to make, just unimaginable really. Um, but I suppose it, it did bring them together. How old was Colleen at this time? Uh, she would have been 30s early 30s so yeah she had two young girls of her own um so that you know her two girls had had seen you know they'd grown up knowing their nan um which was Lorraine um so just yeah just cannot imagine how she yeah how she processed it all and and then managed and got the courage to actually tell Tracy about it so yeah so um and Tracy rang Jack and you can't help but wonder how Colleen coped for all those years you know probably having a few little niggles about her dad's death and mum's possible involvement but then surely you just disregard it as being silly 
and Tracy believing Lorraine had had something to do with her dad's decline. Like Colleen must have been so torn at times and just so confused. I think she questioned in her own mind, like there was lots of different bits of evidence that was sort of, you know, especially around the inquest time, but she was only a teenager back then. But I think she questioned it and possibly, um, I suppose, just, you know, ignored it. Um, And then I suppose as she's grown, grown up, um, she's, and then this, of course, it's just all falling into place because she, she had quite a few recollections that sort of I suppose she'd pushed away and one of them was that she remembers her mum taking her to the school or to the local library um, and that those are in the days where you had the cards. Remember the cards that you had to sort of look for all the indexes? Yeah. So, um, but she can remember her mum taking Colleen to look for books on poisons and um Colleen, I mean, at the time, Colleen didn't obviously think of anything of it. But then, as time time went on, um, she it, she got that sort of recollection and thought that's what was happening. She was obviously, yeah, in a friend, and she said it was like a frenzy. It was um, that she had to get these books, which, again, with the neighbour's account that, oh, sorry, not the neighbour, the the lady that she was the home help um, lady rec- recalled you know, lending a book of poisons to to Lorraine as well. So, yeah, I think as things started, as Colleen, um, I suppose, uh, matured and, yeah, she started to realise that these things were, were signs, I suppose, and then, of course, then the confession, it sort of all added up. Um, as much as she didn't want to believe it, she started to believe that, yeah, this is... Mum's mum's killed my dad. Yeah. What that must do to a person, let alone a child, to think that the very person who gave birth to you had taken away the other most important person in your world and all in front of your very eyes. I, I just can't imagine how that would affect everything in your life and your view of the world for that matter. Yeah, yeah. And I remember my first meeting with Colleen, I must admit I expected, I didn't expect to be introduced to someone like Colleen. Um, She presented as, oh, she was just so down to earth, just level-headed, obviously very nervous, but um, yeah, just normal is that I shouldn't say that but I just I expected I expected someone that would have been a little bit loony you know and just for everything that she's been through but she was just so yeah normal and I thought I tried to put myself in that position I would have been crazy 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 but she was just so oh but she was so nervous the poor thing I just she just had been through hell. Um, obviously, Tracy, Tracy and Tim had been as well. And um, obviously, Tracy. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. 
Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. She was... She'd always suspected it, so I suppose it wasn't as confronting for her. I suppose she'd got used to the idea that that mum had done this, but then Colleen to be confronted with such an emotional sort of confession and then to sort of process it and live with it for the next couple of months and then then realise that she had no choice but to to speak up about it. So, and then of course that speaking up about it, obviously. That was the what we needed to reopen the case effectively. So thankfully, Jack came along for the first meeting that I had with Tracy and Colleen. Um, so that was it was great to have Jack there as a familiar face. I mean, tra- Colleen didn't really remember Jack, but Tracy had certainly because she was a little bit older and had kept in contact with Jack. So it was good for Tracy to have that familiar face, and it just helped me build a bit of rapport with them. And and I were similar to my age at the time. So Colleen was definitely a little bit bit more reserved than Tracy, but I was able to, I suppose because of that similar age and that sort of thing, we were able to sort of um, find some common ground and just start basically getting their confidence to to speak to me about, you know, their whole, what a horrid, horrid time they had. So, yeah, I spent quite a bit of time meeting with them and, and getting their confidence but I also had to be mindful that I didn't want Colleen to get cold feet so it was sort of that balancing act I just I didn't want to um, rush into okay tell me what's happened that's it right see you later sort of thing but I also didn't want her to get cold feet and say no I don't want to make a statement anymore so it was a bit of a balancing act but we got there in the end um, the statement wasn't that long it wasn't a marathon but it was I did spend a lot of time with with Colleen to do preparing the statement so there was it would take her back there and there was we had to have lots of breaks and that sort of thing but um I think it was sort of one of those things we had to just nurture it I suppose and and I couldn't really 
do too many follow-ups until I had Colleen's statement. So I could do a couple of things that wouldn't alert any of the potential witnesses, things like, um, you know, I chased up the superannuation and established that Lorraine got $11,000, probably to the cent, which was interesting because that's exactly what she told Colleen. Obviously, I I was reviewing all the statements from the original inquest and the transcripts just to identify if there was any potential other witnesses or avenues of inquiry, but I couldn't actually go to them at that time because I didn't have a signed statement from Colleen and we didn't want to compromise the or let Lorraine know that we'd reopen the case because that can compromise the whole investigation. So, I mean, there was little things I did like learn about the poisons. Um, I learned a lot about leptospirosis and I actually learn how to say it properly that was one thing because when I first saw it I thought how the hell do you say that but um so I learned a little bit about that and just a little bit of research and obviously we reviewed the forensic tests because things had progressed since then um so we sent the original forensic tests off to for opinion to experts just so they could review that and a review of the medical records and they were extensive because of the amount of bouts of illnesses he had so and he'd seen doctor after doctor because just no one none of the doctors knew what the hell was going on so there was doctors medical records they were I think they filled it one whole box file so I had to go through all those and review them but yeah I just did have to hold off recanvassing any of the witnesses and also the new witnesses to the confession because we didn't want to alert them that we actually had reopened the case so the the traditional techniques that we would use, you know, such as surveillance or telephone intercepts or listening devices, were not really going to be a helpful to this case. Um, we already had a body, so, and obviously we had the we knew the cause of death, so DNA and all that sort of thing didn't really come into it. We we had that evidence, but it was building. I suppose it was a more of the circumstantial case that we had to build on. So. Ron, at one of our team meetings, we were throwing up ideas on other avenues of inquiry and, and Ron threw up the idea of asking Colleen to record a conversation with her mother. So essentially what we used to refer to as a pretext call. So that that's when one party's aware of the conversation so they're able to record it. Um, but with pretext conversations, they use quite a bit in sexual assault matters. You've just got to be so careful that you there's a process that you have to makes it legal and admitted as evidence and that's that you don't you don't put words in the person's mouth or anything so it's clearly it has to be independent from the investigators so it's basically up to so it would have been up to Colleen to work out what she was going to say how she was going to bring up the topic that sort of thing so but I remember when Ron posed that idea I nearly I nearly died on the spot because I I got to know Colleen quite well at this stage and I just didn't I just thought I can't put her through that. How traumatic. I just thought, oh I can't. But anyway, um yeah, he convinced me that that was probably the best way to go. So um so I trudged off and sat her down and proposed that she, you know, I had to explain it like a wire, essentially, and gave her some thinking time and to be honest, I didn't expect her to, to agree to it. I just thought there's no way. But but she rang me and said, yep, I'll do it. How courageous is that? That was just... She must have had great confidence in you, Kira, because it's an awful lot of pressure to do something like that, particularly to your own mum. I think um, 
I was hoping that it was because I tried to explain it to her that this is, you know, how we can collect evidence and that sort of thing and this is our best chance of actually getting her, basically. I suppose um, Tracy probably was a big factor in that too, to encourage her. I mean, Tracy was um, obviously on, on team <laughs> on team Johnny um, and, yeah, just really, yeah, was obviously offering the support and everything that she needed but was, yeah, very keen for her to do it. So she probably, oh, the pressure she would have felt would have been enormous. But, yeah, I tried to, I suppose, you know, no pressure but, um, yeah, so and by that stage, yeah, we had, we'd got to know each other quite well and I think I just I suppose just the honesty policy worked and just getting her confidence that this is and I, I think I probably threw Ron under the bus as well saying it was all his fault so you know <laughs> Ron's you know, it was Ron's idea yeah that's right Ron you know Ron said this would be a good idea and yeah <laughs> so if it worked it was your idea and if not it was Ron's idea yeah that's right <laughs> that's right yeah so, yeah, Colleen arranged to meet with Lorraine at, at the Malmesbury Park, which um, is sort of halfway between where they live. And um, I think from memory she tried a couple of times to ring her and didn't get an answer. So there was a bit of a delay in that, but she finally got onto her and I think she might have used the pretense that it was coming up to Christmas. She wanted to clear the air. Can we catch up? So Lorraine agreed and because I hadn't Colleen hadn't spoken to Lorraine since the whole confession. So it was actually on the 20th of December. So we picked up Colleen and showed her how to operate the recorder and oh yeah, the poor thing. I um yeah, I'll just yeah, I'll just just really, really felt really bad for her. But yeah, let her off into the garden. It was like letting your own child off into the, you know, off you go. Yeah, so dropped her off at the garden. Like taking your child to school on their first day. Yeah, it was like that. So she went off to meet her her mum and um, it wasn't one of those devices that feeds back to us. We had to wait until Colleen came back to us to listen to it and she walked back. She was shaking her head in disbelief. It was just so I remember I said, are you okay? And she just said, I just... I thought I had her. I thought, and she was so disappointed in herself she, that she didn't get, you know, the big confession. We're going, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. So I didn't think she got any, but what she got when we played it, it was look, it was it wasn't a confession as such, but it was enough to, yeah, crack on certainly. And and I played it. In- it's not all that often they work, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's always a gamble. Yeah, yeah. And and Colin did an amazing job, and we had not worded her up at all she just the way she did it and you could tell by that the actual tone that Colleen forgot that the tape recorder was on she just wanted she wanted to know the truth um it was heartbreaking actually because she was screaming or not screaming but like crying and you did it mum you did it what you know and oh it was just Oh, just really hard to listen to. You just wanted to give her, a, you know, just want to. I'm glad that it wasn't fed into us live because I probably would have gone and run over there and just given her a hug. Just comfort her. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was sort of started the, um, well, certainly built enough that we had another circumstantial case, but certainly it was more, um, 
that we had more there with the confession and all. And if we were able to get statements from all the people that she confessed to, though, it certainly corroborated everything that Colleen had told us. So um, that's, but we couldn't get those statements at that time again because we couldn't alert Lorraine to the fact that we'd reopened it or, you know, we didn't want to dob Colleen in that, you know, this was all a sort of set up, I suppose. But um, so we had put that side of all those avenues off until we actually had interviewed Lorraine. So on the 17th of January the following year, so in 2001, which was actually, I think, 17 years and four days after John had passed away, we arrested Lorraine. And I, that wasn't done on purpose. It was just purely, it was just the way it turned out. So um, so she wasn't actually at home when we went to arrest her. So we had to go to her work, which was the Bethlehem Nursing Home, and had to just sort of make some discreet inquiries at the front counter. She was a, um, like a, I think she was a nurse's aide or something like that. Or she might have been doing the meals or something. So they actually had to go and get the, the ward sister to go and, get her and we had to show her into a private office and I mean we didn't tell them what it was about but obviously they were a little bit oh what's going on here sort of thing but then she had her handbag up in a locker upstairs so I had to and once we got her into the private office I told her who we were and that she was under arrest and cautioned her and so forth and um yeah that it was just very cold sort of reaction she didn't flinch actually and then um but just wanted to ring Bobby I want to ring Bobby he was out in the road somewhere but she needed to get her handbag from her locker upstairs so I had to accompany because she was under arrest at that time I had to sort of I didn't throw in handcuffs or anything but sort of had to stick stick close by and accompany her to her locker to get her handbag so and her supervisor asked oh will you be back tomorrow Um, Lorraine's reply was, um, I'm not sure. I felt like saying, uh, no, she won't be, um, but uh, I resisted. <laughs> um, uh, you'd better find yourself another kitchen hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I'll never forget that when we're heading back to the car, she turned to me and said, you saw how I was with those old dears. I wouldn't do such a thing. Oh, my God. I suppose if you tell yourself something for long enough, you start to believe it. I think she had. Did you ever interview Bobby? Yeah, he declined to be interviewed. So we asked him, but he declined. So I remember talking to him on the phone. Somehow we got in contact with him. I think he was a couple of hours away and because we couldn't start the interview until we because, you know, you get the right to speak to someone and, and a lawyer as well, but we couldn't get on to him. So there was a bit of delay in the interview. Um and then finally he rang and was explained to him what the hell was going on and um, he just said, oh, I want to see her. Can I see her? And I said, well, she's in interview at the moment and you're two hours away. I'm not waiting, basically. But, yeah, they were both, oh, we want to see each other. That was, yes. Then again, um, I suppose, yeah, people react in different ways. But, yeah, they were, that's all I could think about was seeing each other. So... Do you have any thoughts on whether Bobby was in on it? Like, it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't be. Mm. I don't know. I've been asked that before and I still don't know. Um, I Now that I've, you know, after the interview with Lorraine and, and having that conversation with her, I actually wonder whether he did. I just wonder whether she was just such a evil 
evil person that he was none the wiser. He was, I suppose, easy prey for her. I don't know. Yeah, sorry. Still undecided on that one. So what was she like in the interview? What did she say? She didn't say too much, actually. Um, Oh, she was crying constantly and just kept shaking her head, which was a little bit different to the emotion. Well, she showed no emotion at the hospital when I arrested her. I suppose it would have taken some time to sink in that she was going to be put in jail. So she, we went through the interview and obviously um, had to put things to her and that sort of thing. And she just kept shaking her head, no comment sort of thing. And then at the end, she just said, well, she kept saying, if I'm such a bad person, just lock me up. So we did. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> so she got charged and remanded um and then that's when I could start re-canvassing witnesses from the inquest and obtain statements from the witnesses to the confession back in April 2000 so yeah it was pretty usually by that stage of the interview you're okay yep let's just put the brief together but it was sort of reverse I had to sort of yeah, go like crazy to get all these statements. And, and there was quite a few people to re-canvas. And because it was such a long time forward, I'm trying to ca- you know, find out where they lived and all that sort of stuff. So there was – I found – I had to re-canvas all the doctors. So they were, there was heaps. Um, God. And a lot of the doctors had sort of – they were only young doctors then, but they'd obviously moved on and specialised. And a lot of them were overseas. Mm-hmm. So thank God for emails because that was the only – I think I originally started at the Austin and sort of was able to find out from them where they were or get email contacts for them and that sort of thing. And, yeah, I certainly racked up quite a few international calls during that time. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, at night because it was obviously 3 o'clock in the morning here was the good time. I mean, being doctors, oh, I can only talk to you at 10 a.m., yeah. which was yeah. 3 o'clock. 3am in the morning out time or whatever but um yeah. so yeah started doing working through that list and then um I, I remember speaking to a doctor he was in Canada and he was the intern that actually realized so he was a young intern so just one of their plebs I suppose back then but he was the one that picked up this is this he was the one that suspected the arsenic poisoning and ordered those blood and nail tests mm-hmm. in August oh yeah 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 and um it, it, when I rang him and explained what was going on, it's he was so relieved because he said, "I have never forgotten that because it because the results had turned up too late." Um, he it really had troubled him, um, and he said at the time when I was saying, "You need to this is arsenic poisoning. I'm I'm sure of it," and get these tests done. And no one, none of the other doctors seemed to believe him. Or they just sort of thought, oh, you're just an intern, what would you know sort of thing. So it really had affected him, yeah. But it was funny, every doctor I spoke to remembered the case clearly, every doctor. They went, yeah, I remember that one. So, yeah, so I was able to find most of the doctors. I mean, obviously a couple had passed on or I wasn't able to find, but um, most of them I was able to re-canvas. So um, I even came across a few witnesses that put me on to others that had not been canvassed for the first inquest, which happens with the passage of time. And a lot of people at the time don't want to get involved. But then, you know, as time goes on, people, I suppose, come out of the woodwork. So, yeah, I came across a few witnesses and one of them was one of John's workmates and close friends. And he told me how one day John gave him a serving of his homemade stew. Oh, my God. That Lorraine had lovingly prepared for him. Yeah, guess what happened? He took it home for dinner. 
became very ill that night and said he's never been so crooked in all of his life, similar symptoms to John, but he recovered because he only had the one dose of it. But he says, I never ate any more of John's lunches. <laughs> and and then there was another workmate. I, I can't remember. One of them had already been canvassed, but the other hadn't. But I think it might have been this one that hadn't been canvassed at the time for whatever reason, but he described how he swapped lunches with John quite often and he was later admitted to hospital and took him and he was treated for leptospirosis, so the same symptoms that John was displaying and he was in hospital for 10 days. So, um, but at the time, obviously, it wasn't, it was, they thought it was leptospirosis because they all worked at the abattoirs. So, Mm. it was made sense to everyone so but I even came across a nun um, who worked at the Bethlehem nursing home that Lorraine had confessed to oh. so all the the doctors that or the nursing staff and the doctors that were present for the second overdose um they were canvassed there was a bit of there was a bit of hoo-ha trying to get their statements because the obviously the health people were concerned about whether it was privilege all that sort of stuff but we got got over that so they all made statements and yeah so I put a brief together and the committal was held in Bendigo in July of that year so in 2001 it was a two-day committal and um, she was committed for trial so it went pretty smoothly and but it did receive some well it received quite a bit of media interest particularly local Um, so it was on the front page of the Bendigo Addy and and Upon my return, I think I stayed up there that night and then came back to the office the following day and um, I was alerted to a message from a lady who'd rung the office to speak to me and she wanted to talk to me about the poisons case. So it was just another message sort of with her name and phone number. I rang her and she said, I I have some information. I've just seen the newspaper article and I was Lorraine's next door neighbour. And I went, oh, okay. And she said, and she told me how to poison my husband. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, really? So I reckon I hadn't even got off the phone to her and I'm in the car driving to her place. Oh. So so she told me that back in the late 70s and early 80s, she lived next door to Lorraine and she was a young mother at the time. Had I think she had two little kids, was in a very violent uh, marriage. Um, so she would off, often pop in to see Lorraine and have a cuppa with her and she looked up to Lorraine because Lorraine was a bit older and, you know, kept her house lovely, all that sort of thing. And she started to confide in her about her violent husband. And Lorraine basically coached her on how to get rid of her husband by putting – she her choice this time was rat sack. So she sort of coached her on this is what you do, you know, you put rat sack in his coffee and keep stirring it in, that sort of thing. Um, oh. And she – mentioned it a couple of times to this lady and her name was Nancy this lady um so she ended up moving and I think she even moved into state and, and lost contact with Lorraine didn't kill her husband so that was probably a good thing. um and then I think she returned to Victoria and that's when she saw the newspaper article reporting on the commutal and that had outlined what the the prosecution believed had happened. So that's when she rang. And oh, so wow. it was going to, of course, help our case. So I got a statement from her and um, because it hadn't been tendered at the committal, we had to notify the public prosecutions and oh, yeah. Yeah. notify the defence and, yeah, add it to the brief and that sort of thing. Um, so they had a, 
a voir dire about it before the trial commenced and her evidence was going to be admitted. So, But Lorraine maintained her innocence and at trial, she, the trial commenced in the April 2002 and lo and behold, the, the prosecutor that assisted counsel at the inquest in 1986 was Julian Leckie and he ended up being the Crown Prosecutor for the trial. Incredible. So, Incredible. Yeah, um, which was great because he was, at the time, he was... Um, he had the reputation as one of the best Crown prosecutors and and obviously had some recollections of the case and was really interested in it. So, yeah, I just – we had a good team. Um, but, but you only but dream, it, don't you, of people like Nancy coming forward with information like that. Like that is – you know, you couldn't wish for better evidence than that. That's right. And then – then it gets better because, well, I mean, we obviously had the idea and her, her evidence was admitted. So she's up in the witness box and the defence is, she's given her evidence as, you know, we described in her statement and then the defence is giving her a hammering, trying to put holes in her evidence. And he said to her, my client doesn't even know who you are. You're making this all up. And unbeknownst to me, I had no idea she had this photo. <laughs> so she produces a photo oh, of a no. birthday party. So Colleen, Tracy and Tim are all there with her two kids. Yeah. Lorraine's posing in the background with the birthday cake. And you could tell it was Lorraine. And um, she says, oh, no, no, we here's a photo of a, you know, oh. Tim's birthday party. It was just gold. And the defence said, yeah, no further questions, Julie. Really. Um, <laughs> Seriously, you're right. It does not get any better than that. Oh, that is, yeah. that, as you said, that is gold. Yeah. So um, I was pretty happy with the way the trial ran. I mean, it was still pretty circumstantial, but um, and, you know, things came out about the two chaps that have been ate Johnny's meals and stuff like that. So everything that we'd hoped to get out in the trial came came out it was admitted so it was one of those cases where finally the jury got the whole picture rather than you know a lot of these cases you know yeah it doesn't get admitted that sort of thing so yeah so it was um a two-week trial I think yeah about two weeks the jury retired I think it was on a Thursday and and as you know the the most hard oh yeah just yeah. Horrible waiting for the jury to come out. Yeah, um, it is, yeah. And yeah, just trying to, you just, you know, your life's got to come to a standstill. You don't know. So we're hanging. Like, thankfully, there were some nice parks around the Bendigo Court, and um, I'd sit with Colleen and and Tracy and Tim, and just have a, you know, have a cuppa and just uh, try and bide the time. But yeah, they came out. We got notifi- notified that. They were jury were returning, and it was a Friday after, late Friday afternoon. So you know, oh, is that a good sign that they've come out yeah. after a day? Is that a bad sign? All that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. But lo and behold, yeah, they um, handed down a, a guilty verdict, and I remember sitting in the court behind Julian. You know, just when that when that guilty verdict comes out, and you just think, don't do anything, don't look anywhere, <laughs> just. Don't go yes, or you know, yeah. you just got to clap or don't look at Tracy or Colleen or Tim, just, just look ahead and yeah, be professional. But um, yeah, then we went into the prosecutor's room and yeah, just 
big hugs all around and, oh, just what a relief for them. But, yeah, I just don't know how Colleen did it. I really don't. Uh, well, I don't either, but then I think um, uh, obviously your doggedness, you know, and going down every path, that's what a detective does and that's what we love, isn't it, where you go down those little rabbit burrows thinking what's down there and then you get all this fantastic evidence that you got about, you know, the meat, uh, Johnny's mates eating their, their meal and, I mean, a lot of it is luck, um, as in oh, you know, definitely. as in Nancy yeah. ringing you. But yeah. but um, you, it, it's not luck really because of the amount of work you put in. But I believe there were some comments that the judge made that were quite telling. Yeah, yeah. So she was um, sentenced on the third of May, um, and that was so a couple of weeks after the trial had finished. So. And it was a little bit, was one of those ones because it was a cold case, you know, and because female, I wonder how this is, everyone was sort of wondering how this is going to go sort of thing. But she ended up getting a, a 22 year sentence with 18 as a minimum. So that's in those, well, in terms of, that's a pretty good sentence. Yeah, I think everyone was quietly surprised and and the judge's comments were really interesting and it it does I mean they obviously go on for some time but the thing that sticks out for me is that and I'll read it out um it's only a, a small sentence but he says it is hard to think of a more callous heartless wicked person your husband was suffering excruciating pain he was getting weaker and weaker nobody knew why yet you continued to feed him large doses of arsenic so, and as I've said, the effect upon your children must have been devastated, yet you persevered. You have no compassion. You were heartless. You were hell-bent on finally killing him. You gave him a number of massive doses of arsenic in the last months of his life, and you did succeed in killing him. So I just thought, yep, yeah, he's spot on. Yeah, it's a really interesting read, his um, sentencing comments. So, And then she appealed. She, oh, she applied to appeal. Of course she would. Mm. Yeah, thankfully that was rejected. Um, so, yeah, Colleen comes back to she always felt that Lorraine thought that after 15 years she couldn't be charged because she would ask Colleen, could I be arrested after 15 years? And then the, the 14th anniversary of John's death got closer and she'd ask more questions and then – you know, each year she around the anniversary, she'd ask Colleen, oh, do you think I'll get in trouble, that sort of thing? And then um, I think it was on the 14th year anniversary, she said, oh, it's been 14 years, Cole, only one more to go. So, mm. yeah, that, it's that I think that 15-year barrier, once that was up, she couldn't, that she thought she couldn't be charged for whatever reason. But you can only assume that the guilt became unbearable and she just had that outburst that provoked a series of confessions. But then by pleading not guilty, she do, still didn't have the courage to admit it, which meant that the kids had to be dragged through the trial. And, oh, it's just just yeah, unthinkable. It is. And I just, um, yeah, for the kids have turned, I mean, I, I mean, I call them kids, they're my age, but um, for what they've been through. Yeah. Um, yeah. and. I, after the trial, I, I check in with them occasionally and just see how they're going and stuff like that. And then as time went on, you know, those calls become less frequent. But then, um, oh, it was probably about oh, maybe 2000, and I'm just trying to think, it was a footy game 
probably around 2011, um, I actually ran into, I was walking through a bar at the MCG and have a pre-game drink, as you do, Narelle, as you'd know. Um, <laughs> One? <laughs> How about a couple? <laughs> yeah, well, I think Geelong were losing, so it was probably a couple. But um, I passed a familiar face and and she immediately recognised me and, and all of a sudden I've got this massive hug and it was Colleen. And, um, I mean, she hadn't changed a bit. And I, well, I like to think I hadn't changed a bit, but it was just that initial, oh, I know that face sort of thing and then, um, yeah, and then Colleen introduced me to her friend um, and her introduction was, this is the Kira. And I thought, oh, well, you know. And so the friend then gave me a hug and said, thank you. And I just thought, oh, well, I've just, uh, that was, yeah, really. And we've obviously kept in, been able to Facebook and all that sort of stuff nowadays, you're able to contact people a bit easier. So, so yeah, it was just – she's a remarkable lady. All three of the kids are just remarkable for what they've been through and then um, to turn out how they – you know, and they've got the kids of their own and everything now all grown up, so. And as you say, so normal. <laughs> you, yeah. You know, when you, and you're right, when you consider – what sort of a mother would do that to her children to drag them through the courts and to have to listen to all that evidence? And, uh, yeah, I, as you say, they must be incredible, uh, well, now adults that um, have um, been through something that you would never wish on anybody. But um, Lorraine is where she deserves to be. Um, I do. She's actually been released. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, she was released last year. So, um, is she still with Bobby? I believe so. Yeah. Oh well, her li- her life will never be the same, and um, neither it should be. But um, yeah, so I, yeah. Anyway, look, uh, the Kira. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty amazing, and no wonder you won the three AW. Police Person of the Year, I think it was 2004, for that investigation. Um, You know, the police force have lost a fantastic detective, but um, where they've lost that, another person, another company has gained in uh, Racing Victoria. So um, hats off to you. Great job. And um, thank you for telling us such a, a lovely, well, it's not a lovely story, It shows the dedication, doesn't it, of a detective and of a family. Well, thank you very much, my friend. Pleasure. We'll catch up soon. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 